So when we are children, we are not fully conscious. We are sponges absorbing the mores and the behaviors and the beliefs of everyone around us. And we're processing that and we're weaving a story to make sense to us in this unaware state where we're easily wounded because we don't understand. We don't understand nuance. We can't process the discomfort or the pain. And we start blaming ourselves because we should be tougher. He took a bite out of my donut. Why am I hurt by that? Why am I hurt so deeply by that? It's a donut. Not to me, it isn't. It's survival. Welcome back to another episode of To Be Authentic, the only podcast that teaches you how to build a bridge to the life you want from the life you have using human design, the gene keys, and the work. I'm so happy you're here. Let's get started. Hi, welcome back to To Be Authentic. This is Stacey Estrella, your host, and I'm so happy you're here. Today's episode is a continuation of this conversation about conditioning and deconditioning. The last couple of episodes, I started to discuss what these terms were, how I found them off-putting when I first started to live my human design. The whole deconditioning conversation is a giant part of living your truth, living your unique design. But it's a kind of a mystery and a loaded sort of language around what that really means. And so I've been trying to unpack that through real life examples in my own life to hopefully stimulate your own personal inquiry into your own conditioning and deconditioning processes and to help you realize that it's not scary. It just sounds scary, but there's so much liberation and freedom and fun and laughter on the other side when we start to see how our grown-up triggers and behavior are often the result of the little girl or the little boy inside who never had a chance to heal from some nonchalant wounding that happened long, long ago, but that was so painful that they vowed to never feel that pain again, so close them off from it. So last week was about deconditioning. This week, I think it's really important to talk about the conditioning side. How does all this stuff even start? Because to me, that's the mystery. And the reason why I think it's really important to, again, go back to the origin stories of our deconditioning, because there is usually a moment that you remember in your life when something made you feel bad and it felt uncomfortable or it felt icky. And as kids, we do not have the tools of self-awareness. We do not have the tools of self-inquiry. We do not have the tools we need to be able to pause, reflect, and respond. So I want to take you through some conditioning that I discovered and finally made sense of this year and has released me from 50 years of food shame. And this is a topic that hits a lot of us and we don't talk about it because it seems so absurd. How can we be carrying around wounds or a thing called food shame? I was doing a little bit of research in preparation for this podcast because I was curious if there was any existing definition of food shame or what the statistics of 
those suffering from food shame might be. And interestingly, I only found one reference to an article and one small citation from that article that was underwritten by a food company in the United States. But the the actual report, I don't know where that is. I can't locate it. I can't find it. And so it might be for their own private use right now. But what was interesting was this statistic. 44% of consumers have experienced food shame. Okay, that's almost one out of two people have experienced food shame. The effects of food shame are significant and they can last a lifetime. The long-term impacts include low self-esteem and isolation. Low self-esteem and isolation. This is what shame does to us. We run away, we hide, we think it's our problem and our problem alone, and we start blaming ourselves that there must be something wrong with us because we don't know how to eat, right? Because food is so loaded with meaning and everyone else around us, it appears, seems to be just sort of okay with food. <laughs> you know, they don't have any baggage that comes around every time there's a meal or every time there's hunger or every time there's panic about, you know, well, what, what's for dinner? Or can I eat that? Or if I eat that, then this or what have you. So what's interesting is the study that I referred to is referenced as the first study of its kind. And from what I can tell, limited research but from what I can tell, this has not been a topic that has been studied very much. And so there are a lot of us who probably don't feel seen and feel ashamed because this should be something that we know how to do, that it should be natural to have a healthy relationship with food. But what happens is when you have food shame, what does food shame lead to? Eating disorders, binging, purging. What do eating disorders do? They lead to body shame. And then there's this vicious, vicious, vicious cycle that we cannot get out of. And again, we go and we hide. It's really important for anyone who's listening to this that if you feel that you're trapped in this cycle, it is not your fault. It is not your fault at all. There are forces so much bigger at work. And I'm not talking about the food companies. Yeah, could they make things more nutritious? We know that food companies are adding chemicals so that we don't feel the sensation of fullness so that we just keep eating. And then we have this addiction to the dopamine hit of the sugar and the blah, 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 the fat and the sugar. So we know that that's at play. Even if we know that intellectually, how can we support ourselves in responding to, to those factors in a way that allows us to take back our power and self-control? What I want to point out is if you're trapped in this cycle, independent of any sort of addiction to sugar, fat, salt, that your body is craving, okay? Because that's real and biological. But the psychological part of this, right? This is what we're here to talk about. And this is where the work of Byron Katie is super powerful. Because this work of inquiry, where did that 
start? Where did my fear of food or my shame of food or my relationship with food or my obsession with food, where did that start? When we find these origin stories of our conditioning, we have the power to change them. Those conditioning stories happened when we were powerless as children. We didn't know what to make of the comment or the situation. We didn't know, but we're grownups now. <laughs> and now we can take those stories. We can love on that child. We can take that child back into our adult self and heal it. And you heal it by recognizing that the story happened when you did not have the tools to interpret it. So now you do. So now how do we reframe that story so that you can be healthy? So that you're no longer a victim of this vicious cycle of food obsession or whatever your particular food shaming flavor is. And you can free yourself and be in control again. So I'm going to start with my own story by just sharing something that happened uh, on Sunday. So this past Sunday, I went to brunch with a couple of my friends. They're this lovely couple, this creative couple whom I adore. And uh, the woman is an artist, the, the guy is an illustrator. So both very, very creative. And they're my people here. I live up in Saugerties, New York. They live in Woodstock. And we have a tradition of getting together for breakfast. Normally we do it at their house, but this time, we went to a local restaurant in Woodstock, Oriole 9, fantastic food. So those of you who are coming up here for the weekend or the winter or what have you, um, definitely check it out. So anyway, we sit down, we've got the fabulous booth, we're catching up. I order the quesadilla, they order the avocado toast. And when my quesadilla arrives, I realize I'm not really hungry and this is part of my recovery from my food shame, by the way, is I'm now really scanning myself. Am I actually hungry? I don't always do that, right? Sometimes the flavors you know, overcome me and I'd rather you know, have whatever's in front of me. But I'm just saying it's a new awareness that I have. I'm not really hungry. I know I just ordered this big plate of food. It looks delicious. And it was, by the way, really delicious. I took a couple bites and I thought, you know, I'm just going to take it home. And I left my tins, I carry my own takeout container so that I don't have to uh, take single-use plastic when I'm taking food home. And I left them in my car. So I realized, oh, I'm going to have to go get those from my car before we go home. And by the way, the reason why I decided to take my savory dish home was because we had all agreed we're going to order some French toast, you know, to share for the table. We're going to order dessert basically to enjoy when we're done with our savory breakfasts. And I thought, hey, I actually want my appetite for that. <laughs> so I'm going to hold out for the, for the sweet and I'll take the savory home, right? Because that's easy to, to heat up or that's easy and fun to eat cold, whatever. Anyway, so as we're sitting there chatting, my friend, the woman says, hey, can I just take a taste of your of your quesadilla. I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? So she takes a corner uh, off the, one of the pieces of quesadilla and she loves it. Cause I think they, I think they had food envy. I think when they ordered, they ordered what was, what seemed healthier, avocado, eggs, you know, on toast. Right. And I ordered the decadent quesadilla. So I think there was a little food envy there that might've been operating. So, so she takes a bite and loves it and says, next time I'm getting that. 
And then a few more minutes go by, we're chatting and the husband's eyeing my quesadilla. He's eyeing it. Like he's got, he's got eyes on it. <laughs> he's done with his food. He says, okay, I have to try a bite. So I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? Take a bite. And then we're chatting some more, some more and more. He keep, and he's still eyeing my quesadilla. <laughs> so guys, all of a sudden I'm starting to get a little defensive and I'm starting to get triggered. And then he says, okay, I have to have another bite. Can I have another bite? And and I say, yeah, why not? Yeah, go ahead, have another bite. And, you know, I'm thinking I need to go get my containers because I don't want to take any more single-use plastic. But I am telling you guys, I was feeling very triggered. And I was feeling like if I leave this table and go take the five minutes to get the containers out of my car, because I was parked kind of far, if I go do that, I have a feeling that my quesadilla is going to be gone when I come back. I don't trust my friend to leave my food alone. And so in this moment, I'm totally feeling like Joey on Friends, you know, and he wouldn't let anyone eat off his plate. And I'm sitting here just in my space watching and scanning my body for where all the tension is. And I'm really, really feeling defensive. And so what I decided to do was I did not want to run the risk of having him eat my food when I was gone, that I would be upset when I came back and saw that because I knew I would be really triggered over something that really seems so small and superficial, but it's not. And I didn't want to put myself in a situation where that might happen and it might be seen as something light and silly on the part of my friend, like what's the big deal? When on my side, it triggered a really, really big wounding for me around food. <laughs> and I didn't want to be in a position of being hurt or having to defend the wound with my friends in a restaurant. So I decided, you know what, I'm just going to use their takeout container because I'm not going to leave my food here and run that risk because I don't want to put myself in a situation of feeling vulnerable out in the open and with my friends around this food shame issue. This situation has nothing to do with the table. Just like last week's episode was not about the couscous, this week's episode is not about the quesadilla, okay? This story that I am telling you about is actually about four memories of mine, four stories of mine that all connect together around this topic of food shame. This is a story about a fire. It's a story about a nickname. It's a story about a little red calculator. And it's a story about a donut. And these are all stories from my own childhood experiences that made me feel insecure and ashamed, well, insecure about food and ashamed about that insecurity I had about food. Oh my God, just saying that just now, huge healing just happened to recognize and say out in the open that I, for 50 years, five decades of my life, 
I've had an insecurity around food that I kept secret and closeted from everyone in my life. I only started talking about this with a few friends when I came back from the Byron Katie retreat earlier this year, which is where I discovered it and started healing it. And they were shocked. They were surprised. They had no idea. And so I gave you those statistics earlier. One out of every two people almost has some sort of food shame operating in their psyche, in their biology, in their physiology, in their relationship with eating, with food. One out of two people almost. I share that because this is not a topic to be taken lightly. And it's a topic for all of us to become much more aware and empathic about. Because chances are someone that you're sitting with eating dinner with tonight has issues related to food shame. Okay, so I want to tell you how conditioning happens and how it happened for me around this topic of food shame. I turned 57 in January. And in March, my business partner and I went to a nine-day retreat with Byron Katie, who is the author and channel and practitioner of the work. And the work is basically a very, very straightforward process, so simple and straightforward and yet so profound and impactful on your life. It's the process of inquiry into all of the stories that have built our lives, that have built our personas. And it allows you, this is why I love to bring it into the work with human design and the gene keys, because when people meet their design, there's a whole portion of their human design where they say, oh yeah, that's me. Yeah, that is me. And it's a celebration. But then there's a whole other part where they start to see where they have been conditioned to try to be something that they're not. You know, They've been vulnerable to different areas of conditioning that are in their chart. It's just the way that we're all built and we all have it. And so when you know that, oh, there are parts of me that may have been vulnerable to messages of conditioning where I've, I've limited myself. I've limited how I move through life because I have taken on someone else's belief that has translated into my own behaviors and limitations of self. And what the work does is it gives you the tools to find the source of those limiting beliefs, which are stories, and reconstruct them, reframe them, and take ownership of them. Because while the wounds may have come from outside of you, with or without intentionality, to keep them alive in your adult self now, that's on you. And so the work gives you a chance to be totally accountable, right, for what you choose to believe and how you choose to behave going forward. So anyway, when I was at this retreat, I thought, okay, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to investigate some of the things that are in my own way. And the first thing that came up for me was food obsession, food obsession, obsessed with food. And I thought, okay, I'm going to sit with that. I'm going to interrogate that. And I'm going to use that. I think it was the third day. I'm going to use that as a case study for myself, right? Let me see how these tools work. And I started to do the judge your neighbor worksheet on a situation that happened when I was six, because that's the story that came to mind. So when we start to 
invite in, okay, I, th- I have this thing called food obsession and how it presents itself is I'm always thinking about food. So I know, you know, there are those memes that go around where, oh, I'm already thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch as I'm eating my breakfast. You know, I'm not talking about these kind of social moments or foodie moments or what have you. I'm talking about for me, the way that food obsession presented itself is food was always on my mind in the sense of where will I be for my next meal? Will I get hungry? A lot of it had to do around hunger now that I think of it. Will I be hungry before I have a chance to eat? So for me, I discovered that I was eating to prevent hunger instead of waiting to be hungry because I was afraid that if I got to the point of being hungry, I would not have food to eat. And this manifests as going to buffets, really stressful for me with all of this food. And I would always be envious and amazed at people who could look at a whole buffet and just walk away with a hard boiled egg and a piece of bacon and one piece of toast, right? Like I'm just, I wasn't built that way. All my neuroses would come up in these moments. So I decided that I would explore this thing called food obsession because thinking of food took up a lot of my mental energy. If I were awake for 18 hours a day, I would spend 17 of those, and I do not exaggerate, thinking about food. Somehow it was in my consciousness. What can I snack on? When am I going to eat? Oh, I'm not really digesting that. What's wrong with my body? And it all gets jumbled, but always thinking about food. And it took up so much of my mental energy. I really felt like, who would I be if I could free myself from this obsession, right? It takes up so much mental space. There's so much more I'd like to do with that energy and that space, right? Then be obsessing about the potato chips, the cravings, the whatever. And so the second I invited this in, and that's what's so interesting, how our subconscious is so, and maybe our higher self is so ready to help us, but we have to invite it. The second I said to myself, I think I want to explore this topic of food obsession, a memory was served up. And the memory was when I was six and my house burned down. Thank goodness for my sister and her asthma because we would have been asphyxiated if she did not wake up because she could not breathe. And she was the one who alerted my mom and her husband at the time of what was happening. I was a really heavy sleeper. I was the last one out. And by the time I got out and we were all assembled, we're standing across the street, I think, or in the middle of the street, just watching the inferno. And someone has me on their shoulders so that I can see what's happening. And what happened in that moment, and the little girl in me still feels that pain. I am so tense and frightened, not because of the fire. And I can't help myself. I blurt out and I start crying. But what's going to happen to all our food? And all of a sudden, all the grownups started laughing. And I totally get it, right? Like, we just lost everything we own. We have no place to live. We have the clothes on our backs. And here there is this little child 
whose only thought is about the canned peas in the cupboard, right? And they realize as adults, our next meal is the least of our problems right now. But for me as a little six-year-old girl who already loved food and I believe had a healthy relationship with food, I loved it. All I knew was food comes from the cupboards. Food is in the cupboards and it is gone in this moment. That's where food comes from. Where am I going to get my next meal? And I kid you not, in that moment, I can feel when I connect to that little girl right now, I can feel her heart closes up. All of a sudden, she realizes humiliation, shame. I have been laughed at because I am concerned about the food. I am laughed at for this fear I have, like this physical fear I have about how am I going to eat? Food comes from the cupboards and the cupboards are on fire. In that moment, I develop the belief and the behavior to not care about food in public, to not like it too much, to not think about it too much, because I'm going to be shamed for that. This is conditioning. This is how it starts. This is where it was imprinted in my own life and my own behavior 51 years ago. So then little girl starts to go through life. The house gets rebuilt. We continue on our lives and I get this nickname. So now I'm going to talk about a couple compounding events that are all around this concept and construct of food and my insecurity about it and my inability to talk about it, because if I bring it up, I'm going to be shamed for it. It's not a legitimate fear is what that laughter said. And I get this nickname, Tank. So we start to layer in the body shaming. Now, when I was a little girl, so now I'm probably seven or eight, all of this is a little bit of a blur to me. I don't even understand where this nickname Tank came from. But I look back at pictures of me and I'm not a big girl. I'm a very normal and lean little girl. I remember vaguely it was related to the way that I could eat. I would put away food with focus and concentration, okay? And I'm sure, I can't, well, I can't be certain, but it makes logical sense to me that after the fire, I was kind of like, yeah, better eat this now before it all burns up, <laughs> right? So I get this nickname Tank, which now starts to plant another layer on the seed of the fire of insecurity about food. Now I've got this next layer, body dysmorphic disorder. So now I can't talk about food or show my delight in it because I'm going to be ridiculed. I don't know my body because I'm being told one thing about my body from someone else who thinks it's kind of funny and everyone else thinks it's funny and they start to call me tank. So now I'm being told one thing about my body, how it's perceived by others. And yet my mind, there's a dissonance there, right? Because my mind doesn't understand it, but they must be right, right? Because I'm just a little kid. What do I know, right? This is what happens. As kids, we do not have the tools to be self-aware and to defend ourselves against these seemingly benign, innocuous comments. 
criticisms, reactions, laughter in a moment where we're all feeling vulnerable, right? So now we layer onto that, it compounds again. I was raised by a single mom who still just amazes me. Now I know her human design chart, so I realize where it comes from and where she got her will. She has defined will, she has defined spleen, and she has defined sacral. So in her channel, she's got the channel of power and it is about survival. Not even letting the mind get involved, she's just gonna, she has a phrase that, that I love, you do what you gotta do. And my mom, how she put food on the table and a roof over our head and bought a home on her income blows my mind. I still don't know how she did it. And my experience growing up, so now I'm probably eight, nine or 10. And we would all go to the market together and she had a monthly paycheck. So she was very organized. She knew she had to make the money last. And so we would be in the market with the food cart. And she had this little plastic red calculator with these four white plastic tabs. And I don't quite know how it worked. And I've tried to find this you know, online to see if there was anything like this, but this is way back in the 70s. So I've not been able to, but here she has these little tabs and she's keeping track what's going in the basket. And there are times when we would be shopping, putting things in the basket and suddenly some other things had to come out. So for me, I'm looking at this and this is where now my gate 13, which is my sphere in the gene keys for ages uh, seven to 21. So basically a 14 year lifespan where we are most impressionable, where the wounding happens and we start to build our defenses, both on a spiritual level or emotional level and intellectual level. And this gate 13 is about the listener it's the gate of fellowship. And in the gene key world, the enlightened or city aspect of it is empathy. And it's so interesting because when I was a child before we had letter grades, so I guess this was maybe through fourth grade, I think it is, maybe through sixth grade. I can't quite remember how far we went before we started to get letter grades. The comments that my teachers would put on my report card always independently different years, second, third grade, first grade, kindergarten, they would write, Stacy is a very sensitive child. And I would read that and I would think, what are they talking about? I'm not sitting in the back crying. But I realized what they witnessed in me was that I had this way and it's how I'm built today. I have this way of taking in the other quite deeply and feeling very deeply. I also have undefined solar plexus to remind you so I have this ability to feel the other's situation very deeply. And if I'm not careful to take it on, especially when it's painful, and I have to really watch that in myself if I'm to be of service, but I am deeply empathic. I am deeply in tune with the other. And in the shopping situations, when I would be with my mom, I felt my mom's worry. I felt her stress. I felt the pressure on her to feed these little babies. You know, I had a younger brother and an older sister and she had only so much money that had to stretch. And for my mom, I don't know that my mom ever felt undignified or anything like that when she's trying to make this work because all she's in is she's going to make it work. And this is what blows me away about my mom. For me, I'm looking at it and feeling, oh, 
how undignified that she has to actually budget for food, the most basic necessity after air and water for human beings to survive, right? But for my mom, in her design, this is, this is not showing up in this kind of moment because her purpose is provide for these kids, right? That gives her life meaning. But for me, what I take away is this message that, oh man, if I'm hungry, that puts stress and pressure on my mom. That makes her life harder. Okay. How messed up, right? How messed up? I am a human being. Being hungry is part of what it means to feed this machine of being a human being, to do great things in this world. But as a child, I start to develop this guilt <laughs> that I have hunger, that my body needs sustenance. And so I start to develop, again, this is the next layer, shame about being hungry, about showing hunger, about being a burden on my mom. Fourth layer of shame. So now I might be in my tween years. I can't really remember. But there was this one, I think it might have been summer or spring break. Maybe it was spring break where my sister, my brother, and I, we all, at this time we were living in Northern California, and we were all sent down to Palm Springs to spend time with our cousins. And we have this one cousin who is just, I mean, he's just, he's hysterical. Cousin Arnold, Arnie, we called him. And whenever you were around Cousin Arnie, your belly would hurt from laughter. Like so, so, so freaking funny. Okay. Everything that would come out of his mouth. It's like he had a way of looking at the world that was just a little off kilter and it, he saw humor in everything and he was hysterical and we loved our cousin Arnold. And so this one morning there's, we're having a treat morning for breakfast donuts. And I think there were enough donuts that had been bought for us. And there were two donuts for each person. My sister scarfs hers, my brother scarfs his, Arnold scarfs his. And I'm thinking, hey man, I don't need the whole two donuts right now. I'm going to have the one donut now and I'm going to save my powdered sugar donut for later because I want to reserve that pleasure of having that powdered sugar donut for later. So I put it on a, on a small plate and I put it on the counter in the corner underneath the cupboard. So it would be in a safe spot and I would be able to eat it later. And so a couple hours went by and we're all kind of milling about in the kitchen or wherever and, and everyone's kind of like snickering, <laughs> you know, these little faces. And I go over to my donut because I feel like, you know, I think I might want to have some now. And there's a big bite taken out of it. And I'm devastated. I'm just really hurt. And I can't show that I'm hurt because it's a freaking donut. Who cares? It's a donut. Okay. Whatever. 15 cents probably at that time. It's a donut. Okay. But here I am now with that donut with a bite out of it, feeling like I can't show that I'm hurt. Everyone's laughing. It was Arnold who took a bite out of the donut. Arnold is, he's the comedian. This is what he does. I was the butt of that joke. I was the butt of that joke that I held a special space for me with that donut, that I elevated that donut 
to a pleasurable experience that I intended to have for myself. And everyone else thought that was laughable. I became the butt of their joke. So again, humiliation. So I have the initial seed that was planted or imprinted in me at the fire. And then these other three layers of messaging to me through situations, through observations, through processing my place in the world and my place in relation to food and other people, how it comes to me, food. And I begin five decades of food shame, food obsession and food shame. And so I'm going to talk about how that has manifested in my life. So the solution, what I decide consciously or unconsciously, right, is it's not safe to think about food. I'm a burden to others because I need food to survive. And I better eat everything, the food that's available, when it's available, or someone else is going to take it from me. Do you see how that came up in my defense over my quesadilla? Do you see why here I am, a 57-year-old grown woman, and I am still traumatized by that? And there may be people that listen to this and that watch this and think, oh my God, what, what a ding dong, right? What a bozo, what a kook. But you know what? I guarantee you there are a lot of people who don't because they know exactly what I'm talking about. And until the first kind of person becomes more compassionate and empathic about the true wounding of the other person, like we will continue in this world with the presence of bullying and shaming, this constant vicious cycle until we all realize that we are all wounded and we must make space for us to air out that wounding to heal it. We need to make space for ourselves and we need, and we need to make space for the other and allow people's feelings and wounding to be legitimate because it's theirs. So what I started to do in solution mode, I started to eat whenever food was available. And one of the things I started to do, I started babysitting. It might've been at the age of 11 or 12. I was pretty young for a babysitter. And it's because I had this sense of responsibility and parents could feel it in me. Well, what I realized very quickly was, ooh, there's food in those cupboards. So as soon as the kids would be in bed, I would be scarfing up food. And often it was packaged and processed foods, you know, the goldfish crackers, you know, cookies, cereal, and I would just scarf it. Honestly, I would eat until the parents came home. I, I am not kidding. And this then led to weight gain and more body shame because I'm eating processed crap that my body can't metabolize, can't process. And now I'm getting into this war with my body about, I don't know what my body needs. I don't know how to feed it because now I'm becoming an adolescent. So hormones are kicking in and the hormones, you know, about water weight gain and, and, you know, that those cycles. And now I'm, I'm feeding my body food that is foreign, not natural. And my body doesn't know what to do with it. And it's also gaining weight because I'm, you know, have the hormones running and I'm, I'm developing you know, as an adolescent and I'm starting to now hate my body because I feel like I'm at war with it. So do you see the food shame led to eating disorders because binging in private when no one's watching is an eating disorder. So I'm starting to do that. Then that's turns in, turns into body shame. So I'm now trapped in this vicious cycle 
that is all private. It's closeted. And then I get to college and now, oh my gosh, my nemesis, <laughs> salad bars, right? Well, you know, I probably ate salads that were 3,000 calories, <laughs> you know? So I start putting on more weight and I did manage to get in front of that, but through a lot of exercise, but still it did not erase my food shame. I still was trapped in that cycle and still ashamed of my body. Okay. Because I'm still trapped in this war with my body now. And what was also happening in college is the only time we could eat was when the cafeteria was open. So this is where I, I really start acting out that fear of, I got to eat when the food is there. So I overeat to prevent being hungry before the next meal time. So this is what led to a lot of my weight gain in college. The last way that it manifested is socially. So when I would go out to dinner with friends, so this is you know, after college, after business school, and now I'm socializing. And I have these two really, really dear friends, my ganapis. That's top secret. <laughs> we would you know, have these rituals of going out to dinner in San Francisco and just catching up, okay? Catching up and being in each other's lives and coaching each other and all of that on relationships, on work, on what have you. And they would tease me because we'd always plan, say, to meet for dinner at 7.30, okay? At Rose's Cafe <laughs> that we called Rosie's. And I would get to the dinner and I would not be hungry. And they'd always tease me. And I would say, oh, well, you know what? I had a little snack before I got here. And they'd tease me. It's like, why did you eat before you knew you were going to eat? I never understood it either. And so when I started to investigate this food shaming back at the Byron Katie retreat, what I started to realize about this very complex and layered relationship I had with food that was dysfunctional, I realized my body started to go along with my mind and signal me, this is what I really believe was happening, signal me to be ravenous an hour before I was actually going out to meet my friends for dinner because it wasn't safe to be excited about food. Do you see how this goes all the way back to those first four incidents in my life where my subconscious started to bury this shame? So now I'm acting like I don't understand it. I never eat at four or five or six, but for some reason, always an hour or two before we planned to eat, I would be ravenous. And then I would take whatever, the leftovers home, and I would eat them when I got home. So what happened when I discovered all of this? I mean, guys, this is the beauty of being kind to yourself, being good to yourself, and being curious about where these odd behaviors start, where it feels like you do not have control. You do not have power over your mind or your body. And I'm telling you, the second that I found that memory of the fire in that moment, and I did a judge your neighbor worksheet on it, that is where I realized these people are laughing at me because I mentioned food. This was a watershed moment to me being a prisoner to my mind. It was an instant liberation. And what happened at this Byron Katie event, the reason why the food obsession as a topic came up so easily for me when I was at this event was because the way food was served was in a buffet. And I noticed how when I was in line at that buffet, 
I was loading way more food on my plate than I could really eat in that sitting. And yet I would eat every bite on my plate. I would be stuffed to the gills, overstuffed. And I realized this is what I do. I eat to prevent hunger because I don't have confidence about the next meal and when it's going to come, which is really kind of absurd given that I am an adult and I know how to access food. I do know when the next meal is. If I get hungry, I know where there's a store in the hotel where I can get something. But somehow that information was not actionable. The little girl was still eating for me. She was still making decisions while loading up that plate. And so I started to watch my behavior with relationship to mealtimes. And once I realized I was now debugging, right? That's what this deconditioning is. We're debugging, you know, our, our subconscious. We're changing and reframing the story so that we can show up differently. And I realized I started to watch my behavior. I started to, to scan my body for hunger. And the next time I went to the buffet, I thought, you know what, let's do an experiment. Let's just take the food we think will be enough to get me to the next meal so that I'm not hungry. Instead of overeating, let me just see if I can play with this thing called enough. And, you know, thinking a few hours ahead. And so I realized, okay, so instead of taking three big scoops of protein, I took one and then a second. <laughs> okay. It wasn't an instant shift, but I thought, do I need three? I don't need three. And so I just took two. And, you know, I, I did that with every, everything that was an option on the buffet. And then I got to my table and I realized, oh, this is too much. I put on too many eggs. I don't need the eggs. And guys, it was the hardest thing, not the hardest thing. It was one of the hardest things I have done in my life. I consciously left food on my plate that I knew was going to be thrown away. This is physically painful for me to do. I would always eat everything in front of me because I don't know when the next meal is coming. This is really, really painful, but I let that food go. This was a moment. And so the next time I was in the meal line, I thought, okay, so let me just take what I think I need right now. Okay. It's breakfast. What do I need right now to satisfy my hunger? What do I need? I ate a banana in line. And then when I got to the eggs, I took half a scoop of eggs. I put on a lot of berries because I wanted the antioxidants. I went to my seat and I was already satisfied from the banana. And I ate the berries and I sat and I waited. And then there came a moment where my body wanted the protein. And so I ate the eggs. This is such a small act, it may seem, but it was a huge triumph because it marked a really big shift for me, which was trusting in my adult abilities to find the next meal, should I get hungry? And it was eating to satisfy hunger instead of to prevent it. This has transformed my life. Now, has it totally transformed my eating habits? Do I never snack? Every once in a while I do. I've had a few moments where I started to fall back into these shameful patterns. And then I, I 
I recognize it and I start to snap myself out of it. And I'm really into now, um, if you're familiar with Dan Butner, he's about the blue zones and I'm really into longevity and between him and between Dan Butner and Michael Pollan, eat food, mostly vegetables, not too much. Between the two of them, I feel like they're really teaching all of us to have really, really healthy relationships with food and our bodies in the name of longevity and not just living to a hundred, being vibrant and thriving at a hundred. And that's now where I'm focusing my energy and my attention. And it's interesting because as I start eating more healthfully in the spirit of that longevity quest, you know, eat food, not too much, mostly vegetables way, I feel a new love and appreciation and respect for my body. Is it the size I want it to be? No, I wish it were a few pounds lighter, right? Is it the um, strength or the, the leanness that I want it to be? No. And I'll get to those, but the way for me to get to those I realize is through a healthy relationship with food, which is the journey that I'm on and which I am so grateful to the work of Byron Katie of helping me get here because I was able to find all of those origin stories that created such a messed up relationship with what is a big part of our lives next to sleeping is how we eat, how we nourish ourselves. So the takeaways to this are conditioning happens to all of us. And I've given you a story here to help you see one, how it has happened to you, but also how we unintentionally may be conditioning the people around us, especially the children. When we laugh or comment in a benign way about them, we just have to be aware. We do not realize that our own behaviors have conditioned others and created these shame relationships with who knows what. The conditioning happens early. It doesn't announce itself. It happens in these benign ways. The grown-ups laughing in the face of this enormous tragedy, but innocence lost in that moment. It happens because when we are children, we are not fully conscious. We are sponges absorbing the mores and the behaviors and the beliefs of everyone around us. And we're processing that and we're weaving a story to make sense to us in this unaware state where we're easily wounded because we don't understand. We don't understand nuance, okay? We can't process the discomfort or the pain. And we start blaming ourselves because we should be tougher. We shouldn't be wounded. These are silly things to, to be hurt about. He took a bite out of my donut. Why am I hurt by that? Why am I hurt so deeply by that? It's a donut. Not to me, it isn't. It's survival. The good news is we can take back our power from this conditioning, but you have to find the origin story. You have to do the work. And I use the work in two ways, double entendre. You have to do the work of opening up your memory banks, of going back to those origin stories, of going back to your childhood, of going back to wherever the wounding happened. And then you have to do the Byron Katie work of judge your neighbor worksheet, four questions, and turn it around. 
but to really look at, you know, what is keeping you here? What story is keeping you here? And how can you release that story with your grown-up sensibilities, your grown-up sense of consciousness and self-awareness and love and empathy for you, for yourself? And I tell you, when you heal yourself, you will show up lighter and your presence is going to be healing to others. And I also believe these are taboo topics and we have to be able to talk about them in the way that I'm talking about them. And I've actually never heard anyone talking openly about food shame. Not that I'm the first one. It doesn't mean that. Uh, it doesn't mean that I'm special in that. I'm, I'm not trying to make that as a point. But what I'm saying is this is something that for me, I've kept to myself closeted. And when I started to tell people in my life that this was happening, they were shocked and surprised. My own sister had no idea, no idea. And this was a really big deal for me and sharing it with the people in my life and now sharing it in this platform is only providing further healing to be able to say and to be able to see how far I've come in a very short amount of time <laughs> because I was able to turn those stories around because I was able to confront the victim, the child victim, and turn that into an empowered adult who's now here to protect that child. I can tell her, I know when the food's coming. Don't you worry. I know when the food's coming. Let's not obsess about it, right? We'll eat when we're hungry, period. I assure you, it's my duty not to let her down. So sharing our healing with others, part of the healing process. We can also stop shaming each other for things that we do not understand that hurt others, right? The fact that my sister and brother and, and cousin Arnold laughed because, you know, of his joke of taking a big bite out of my donut, you know, that was funny for them. I get it. But if they were paying attention, they would have seen the trauma and the sadness that was in my eyes and in my body language, you know? They don't need to know why I'm feeling that way, but they could have provided comfort in that moment. And they didn't. They didn't know better. That's all. When we know better, we do better. And to just recognize that we are all wounded in one way, shape, or form. We are all wounded, period, end of story. I may not know what your wounds are, but I hope that I am sensitive enough when I'm engaging with you to hold space with tenderness and understanding and empathy for whatever wounds you're working through or for whatever you're hiding from. The last thing is we just need to be more mindful of our casual commentary. You know, when I was reading this food shaming article and I did see a couple of blog posts that were talking about food shaming and how it starts to happen when people are judging what's on another person's plate. Oh, can you eat all that? Oh, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Oh, that doesn't look very healthy. Like judging the nutritional value. Like there's, there's so much in these little comments about what the other is eating that uh, are just so deeply damaging. And we can watch ourselves and refrain from passing judgment. We do not know what someone is dealing with. And so really refrain from commentary, criticism, judgment. We can watch ourselves for that. This was a really tender episode. And I am really grateful that you're here and that you've listened. And if there's someone in your life who might benefit from it, please share it with them. You know, part of my mission with To Be Authentic is to 
make it easier and more comfortable for all of us to bring our whole self to the table. And our whole self includes our wounding so that we can heal it and to make it a safe space for us to heal it. And I appreciate you every week. And look forward to all of us healing together. We can do this. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for joining me on this episode of To Be Authentic, where we explore the practical side of human design, the gene keys, and the work in an integrated approach we call the quantum way. If you're new to human design and the gene keys, Click the links in our show notes to get your free chart and profile. While you're there, subscribe to our mailing list to receive special offers and invitations and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and your podcast provider of choice to never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening. You make this podcast matter.